Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So, let us begin. You know, it's not going to take them long to figure out what happened to us. Could be worse. It's worse. There's something alive in here. That's your imagination. Something just moved past my leg. This week, the story is all about the many critters and monsters of Star Wars, but with a a distinct line drawn separating the civilized from the not. So we're counting down essentially our top six favorite beasts that don't necessarily have like language skills or self-governance. I don't know that we together expressly put uh, a definition on this, but the benchmark, Ross, uh, I described when we were talking about this was like Tauntauns, not Wookiees. Wookiees have a language. They have leaders. They have autonomy. Tauntauns are idiots. There are Star Wars creatures uh, that kind of toe the line, and I think you could argue that they're civilized or maybe not. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, if we viewed the parameters the same. Yeah, you you make a really great point, and there are... it's, I viewed it the same way. However, I chose multiple uh, creatures that live in that gray area. Okay. Of it's just pure blur of, okay, they, there is some, that is far more special than just a big dumb beast. Um, <laughs> so it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it should be interesting. But uh, do you want to dive right in? Yeah, I guess we'll just uh, go right into it. And I'm actually not sure that we did a very good job of describing what the, the distinction is. But like, I'll, uh, without spoiling, I, I, think... I, I will say a lot of mine are monsters. And, and like, a Wookiee is not a monster. No, exactly. I mean, you could see that it's monstrous. But like you said, it has its own language. It's civilized. Uh, it has a leader. It's not uh, beastly in, in the exact same way. So no, I, I think, I think you, made a, you made a pretty good point there. Uh, and as we go further through this, there'll be a lot of things that align probably for the two of us that uh, make it pretty clear what the parameters that we took were. Okay, what is your number six on this list? My number six is uh, pretty damn gray, uh, and it would be essentially the the OG of the creature of the Black Lagoon, uh, and that would be the garbage masher monster, the Dianoga, uh, named Omi. In particular, the one from New Hope, and it is—it's uh, such a fascinating creature. It's this little eye uh, attached to a vein, attached to a gigantic, monstrous serpent monster that lives in uh, humid garbage. And uh, in particular, the one on the Death Star is attracted to Luke because it's force sensitive and it's able to. Uh, it's, it calls to him. And really? That's the reason as to why he drags him underwater. Yep. Uh, and so that's why that's perfect gray area. This is, it shows the force sensitivity is not limited to even the civilized creatures. It's, uh, and to say that would be vanity in the words of Luke Skywalker. <laughs> uh, but it, it goes to show, and uh, Omi is a great example. And then the Dianoga uh, has returned recently <clears throat> in the Bad Batch in a really cool way as well. And cool. so that was a, a nice kind of reminder like oh are we gonna get like a creature in the black lagoon we are getting a return of our original creature and so the dianoga is my number six it's also my number six perfect That's yeah amazing so and and for a lot of the reasons that you described like it's it's the og movie monster and it's classic because it works for how little you in fact see of it right like yes mm. it is an eyeball attached to a vein and it's kind of off-putting when you see it the first time it's not like the design of it 
is especially badass, like you got it from like a Dungeons and Dragons handbook or something. But it's a classic less is more. And I can't help but notice that this movie comes out two years after Jaws. And so there's probably a line to be drawn between Bruce the Shark and the Dianoga for the suspense that their presence creates. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And of course, you're going to see that when you have Spielberg and Lucas as well. Uh, you're going to have those lines that are going to be very easy to draw. And it's because it's that interpretation. And you get this like weird like Muppet thing that doesn't look that menacing. But then you see the tentacles and it's like, oh, what's... Uh, Really, what is that? I don't I don't want to see the rest of this. Please just go away. And as a kid, I was so happy that this scene was not more. Uh, it, it didn't gross me out too much, but it sure as hell could have if they gave us any more and if Luke got dragged underwater for any longer. I think um, the trash compactor scene, scene, trash compactor is a contender for uh, iconic moments that we talk about the least. Yeah, that's a very, very uh, fair assessment. We don't maybe give it its due the way that we should, uh, just in the sense that you it's it's uh, it's a bottle episode of our main characters uh, with 3PO and R2 uh, on the mic. Right. And it's just, it, it's, it's classic Star Wars uh, and the reason that we all fell in love with it, really. Okay, uh, number five from you, please. Uh, number five for me, uh, and this really was tough to be able to kind of choose the ones that would make uh, my top six. And so even the Dianoga at six there, it had to be our two contenders. But my number five is one that you definitely won't have, and that would be the Zillow Beast. Okay. Uh, and the Zillow Beast is uh, featured in Clone Wars, and it is the Godzilla of the galaxy far, far away. Uh, and so there's a phenomenal arc uh, in which uh, the Zillow Beast is tried, essentially... Palpatine wants the Zillow Beast to tame and to be able to create armor using the Zillow Beast's uh, scales and whatnot. Uh, and it is, it's a sad story. And the Zillow Beast attacks Coruscant uh, after they're able to capture it. Uh, and it is just, it's a really interesting creature that you can, uh, it once again, it lives in that blurry area of you can tell it's very smart, but it doesn't necessarily... Um, it's it's still a gigantic monster. Uh, it looks yeah. like just a, gi a giant dinosaur. It really is like the Godzilla in that regard. Uh, but the Zillow Beast is, is a very cool uh, arc in the Clone Wars. Uh, and Dave Filoni in particular is a huge Godzilla fan. And this is George Lucas giving him the green light to bring that to Star Wars. So they were distinctly going for a Godzilla vibe. That was like a direct yeah. homage. Absolutely. Okay. It's the Zillow Beast. <clears throat> So, I mean, I imagine it was derived from the Zilla beast, Godzilla. Yeah. Oh, so. Godzilla, of course. Well, isn't yeah. it interesting? And just this very brief conversation so far, we've already just like made a bunch of uh, references to movie monsters. Like, yeah. And I watched and a, I watched A Quiet Place 2 this past weekend, too. And like, I'm not really a, a monster movie kind of person, but like, it's really good and reminiscent of Stranger Things a lot. And so like, it, there's still uh, new uh, ground to tread I think in the monster movie genre and maybe it needs to come back in Star Wars because and I, I don't know if this is going to come up later I suspect it probably won't on either of our lists but uh, to step on it a little bit they went all in on Rathtars in The Force Awakens and then other than that we don't really have a, a movie monster moment in the rest of the sequel trilogy yeah well we do have uh, the Vexus and the Rise of Skywalker okay. uh, underneath the like the uh, the Sonda Dunes. 
Okay, okay. Uh, but once again, not that interesting of a creature. And the Rathtars in particular, uh, they don't appear on my honorable mentions list for, for good reasons. So yeah. uh, I'm not going to feel too bad there. But uh, I just looked it up because I, 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 I really wanted to kind of convey the size. But um, 60,000 metric tons and 97 meters uh, tall. Uh, wow. would be the average size of the Zillowbees. So they're like bloody massive. Yeah. Uh, and even just right here on the, the Wikipedia article, it says right at the top, semi-sentient. And so it's like, it, 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 it's, it's smart. It's just not, um, it's, it, it definitely lives in that gray beastly category. Like a dolphin. Yeah, that's a really great example. <laughs> but then also it, it, it gives you, to, it, it, you have empathy in a similar part of a King Kong way yeah. that they go for. Um, and uh, the Zilla Beast, uh, of course, Palpatine is behind all of the uh, torture that the Zilla Beast has to endure. My number five is the cuddliest of everybody on my list, and it's Porgs, which I think are controversial, similarly to the way Ewoks are controversial. Um, although a common issue uh, for a lot of people is just a general sense of dislike for The Last Jedi, and I think those people need to find another hobby because because they're looking for Star Wars to be for tough guys and it never was and it's never going to be. Like, cuteness actually drives Star Wars. Look at the Mandalorian. And yeah. though Porgs lift immediately out of that movie, like, they do not need to be in The Last Jedi. They do nothing story-wise. They provide a little necessary comedic relief on Octo in particular. Uh, and I'm never sorry to have them there. Like no Porg joke is wasted. They're really nicely designed and they don't really look like anything else in Star Wars. In fact, there's not really a play on uh, birds in Star Wars very often. They're kind of like Ewoks, but also penguins. Um, and that was a good combo, I think. So thrilled you put this on your list. Uh, it was the one that really battled the Dianoga the hardest. I'd say it probably finished seventh on my list, so just missed out. So I was really glad it made it on yours. Uh, Puffin is the main inspiration for sure. the Borg. Uh, but yeah, it definitely gives you that little vibe, and you get the, the cuteness of the Ewok kind of returned. Uh, and I completely agree. It The notes really hit in the movie. It provides levity at the right time. Uh, they're not over the top. Uh, and as much as... Um, like Grogu's cuteness is kind of integral to the character uh, and Ewoks a little bit as well. It maybe doesn't make as much sense that the Ewoks are as cuddly and no. as, and as, as fearsome as powerful and has played such a role in, in overthrowing the empire. Um, whereas the Porgs are able to just not necessarily need to play that big of a role. No. The Lanai with the caretakers, they're the ones who are more essential creatures on Octo. Um, and they're never talked about. <laughs> no, not at all. And and to be clear, would the Lanai not qualify for this particular list? They would not. They have uh, a leader, uh, Alcida Aka, um, and uh, the men are all, uh, they live at sea. Uh, there's a deleted scene where they actually, they come into shore uh, and they throw a big party and Luke tricks Ray and says that it's um, uh, pirates coming to like pillage the village. Uh, and then, it's just a party instead. And so that's why they cut it because it's kind of Luke just being a dick, being a dick sake. <laughs> right. Uh, is it your turn for number four now? Uh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, my number four is the Pergil. And this is another one that you would not know. Uh, and the Pergil is space whales. And oh. so they are incredibly consequential to rebels of all things. And so they were introduced, uh, they're giant whales that 
float around in space, in deep space, uh, and they have long tentacles off the back, and they're the inspiration for, uh, or the believed inspiration for the discovery of hyperspace, oh. because they can travel through hyperspace naturally. Okay. Uh, and so they are like, that's such a weird outside the box concept. Uh, and they come in to play in the finale of Rebels when a Pergil uh, attaches itself to Grand Admiral Thrawn's ship and rockets him and Ezra into the like into hyperspace, i.e., into the middle of nowhere because it's just a whale's instinct, the direction that they went. Yeah. Uh, and so that's how Rebels ends. It ends with the main character and the main villain shot into uh, unknown space by a, a giant whale. Uh, that is ridiculous on paper. Yeah. But the execution works. Uh, they're creative. Uh, you see these like giant space monsters like the Exegorth uh, in Empire Strikes Back. Uh, that's just, it's in an asteroid. Uh, you get these giant monsters in Solo in the Rise of Skywalker that are just living in deep space. Uh, and I think this is uh, by a, a landslide the best execution uh, in doing it in a creative way that. Um, provides more i guess kind of backstory and, and i guess creativity to this uh weird creature that didn't seem like it had importance when it was first introduced uh but then later becomes incredibly important was that always the plan for the ending of rebels was that something that they just kind of drew up last minute and it kind of stuck the landing or was that always what they were going for when they teased this creature earlier on I'm going to guess that's what always they're going for because of the way Dave Filoni plans things and also because of Thrawn. Uh, they probably introduced it as a way, and oh, oh, actually no, they definitely, they definitely planned it because they do direct foreshadowing maybe an entire season before. Okay. Um, and so my guess is they had done that and the, they, uh, Thrawn uh, interacts with the Bendu, which is uh, a spiritual kind of, he, he says, uh, I'm not light, I'm not dark, I'm the one in the middle, I'm the Bendu. He is he's a very interesting part of the Force and the way that the Rebels really explores different characters. Uh, and so he's just this kind of, he's almost like the Deku tree, Colin. Okay. Uh, if I can provide a bit of an example. And he's a Force-sensitive sort of, but he's much more powerful and, and he, he has the ability to do more than just be a giant tree, obviously. Um, but the Bendu uh, threatens Thrawn and tells him that his his, his life will, um, or essentially he will meet his uh, end uh, wrapped in the cold embrace of something. Uh, wow. And so, uh, i.e. the cold embrace of a space whale. <laughs> Impressive. Okay, uh, can, I, can I move on? Yeah, go for it, number four. Number four is the Bantha, one of the essential original Star Wars beasts of burden, um, and often given a backseat to the action, like they're in so much of Star Wars, and like rarely does a hero ride a Bantha, um, but they continue to make appearances because they're just like this iconic asset of Tatooine, I think, and so by proxy, they're essentially Star Wars. The design is also just yeah. really amazing, like a long-haired buffalo with these like weird bugle-esque um, tusks, just a cool looking thing. And you're never unhappy to see a, a Bantha, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're directly linked with the Tusken Raiders. Uh, they have just 
yeah, the, the, like this hairy, like, like a manatee kind of, or not a manatee, um, uh, mastodon. Yes, sure. A little smaller and, than that. And, That's why I said buffalo, but like it's somewhere in between. They're just this big mass, really, this incredibly uh, brawny, hairy. yeah, beast of burden. Yeah, and it's cool. Like we saw the gaffy sticks are used to clean their teeth in the Mandalorian. Yeah. That's kind of a cool little thing that they showed. Uh, and single file. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of history behind the Bantha. I absolutely love the Bantha. Uh, it's one that was my honorable mentions didn't make my list, uh, but I'm glad it's on yours. Uh, it's one that reminds you uh, that you're on Tatooine. I wonder if we've seen Bantha on other places. I'm going to just do look that up really quick. Uh, I don't well, know if a Bantha has been seen elsewhere. I I, I, I was really quick, amazed quick by, no. by how much Tatooine... Uh, crept into my list frankly like it, it's just it seems to be a breeding ground for a lot of interesting creatures and I don't know a lot about the specifics of the Bantha I just know that it feels essentially Star Wars and so I guess I'm a fan can you think of something off the top of your head that would be considered like niche information about the Bantha something that uh, I know I'm putting you on the spot but like if there's a lot to know about them what's really special about them do you know no they're they're uh really isn't that much to know okay. um i'm trying to think if there's a, a, a blue milk is from banthas that's right I'm pretty sure um so i think that's maybe as creative of a fact as i can come up with for them but yeah no they're just they, they're uh, an old staple that have been around forever so there's there's not a whole much bunch of lore because they're so linked with the tuscan tribes as well we're moving really really fast which is good because i seem to have a frog in my throat uh what is your number three uh, my number three is, once again, uh, another direct link to a classic monster, uh, and that is going to be Star Wars' version of the Abominable Snowman. Yes, I knew you'd have this. Oh, Wampa. Right. Uh, is Wampa on your list as well? No, it's not, and it would have just made it. It would be just on the outskirts of my list, but I knew for sure it would be on yours, so I knew it would get its yes. due. Yeah. The Wampa is, uh, talk about uh, high stakes. Uh Feasting on the Tauntaun has hung our hero upside down and like, like melted his feet into like the ceiling of his cave. And it's just shredding this Tauntaun, just blood soaking his white fur and just screaming at the notion of Luke waking up. Uh, and then all of the stakes that go along with that. Um, the fact that we hadn't seen what the Wampa looked like when he takes Luke off of the Tauntaun in the first place. You just see the hand come into the screen. Right. Um, it, the, the Wampa is incredible. You, you know my feelings on, on the Wampa cave scene in general. Uh, it's right there up at the very top for me. Uh, and the Wampa, as much as it may not be the most important part of that scene for me, uh, it is part of what makes the stakes so incredible and the moment of luke being able to pull the lightsaber and flip the table and being able to easily take out the wampa uh just such an awesome moment uh in that same vein there was also going to be a wampa uh held captive on echo base that 3po was going to remove uh the sign uh on the like the, the cage like the prison cage uh, and then there was gonna be a scene where a stormtrooper goes in after uh, because 3po ripped off the sign uh and then like you see like another wampa arm just like destroy the stormtrooper <laughs> <laughs> like a beware sign like he kind of sets the stormtrooper up to think that it's safe there 
Exactly. It's like a yellow sign that says like "Beware Wampa" or like whatever. And they no, it's they sh- it's a shape of the Wampa, like a, like, an, like an outline, like is this like oh like men's bathroom, Wampa's bathroom sort of thing. <laughs> um, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's, a, it's such a classic creature. That answers my next question. There are other Wampas then. Like this is a race. This is it's not just like the abominable snowman where there's one who lives in a cave. There's a there's a a known lineage of Wampas. There are other Wampas. Yes. Uh, I'm curious now. I don't know if our if our famous wampa has a name. I wonder a little bit if there are wampas for other climates. Like, are they like bears, where we have polar bears that are white and they exist up north or in cold climates, and uh, we also have like grizzly bears and black bears. Like, are there uh, warmer temperature cl- uh, wampas? That would be so interesting to me. Uh, actually, uh, that is a really great thought, but in my quick look on, on Wikipedia to see if our Wampa had a name, which I didn't think it did, but I just wanted to double check. Um, it says particularly that their habitats, uh, are only, uh, snow plains uh, yeah. and have only been found on Hoth. Oh, okay. So, but, uh, something that as much as I don't necessarily need to see Hoth return, I would maybe like to see a Wampa return. Yeah, maybe that'd be we cool. could find another Wampa on a snowy planet. I don't need to see the not be ice spiders ever fucking again. No, so, I forgot if about to them. An ice planet, give me a Wampa. No Navi ice spiders. I totally forgot about them, but they would be eligible for this list, though they're not going to be on mine anyway. Yeah, no, they wouldn't be on mine either. Man, but, they were uh, nasty. Yeah, no, that, those things were nasty. Oh, man, for sure. My number three is the Rancor. Uh, nothing nice. in Star Wars more befitting of the classification of monster. Like, mm-hmm. everything about its design is just clearly focused solely on disgusting and horrifying you. Um, not, I guess, not unlike a T-Rex in Jurassic Park, but it's kind of lost all of its cool factor. Instead, it just looks like this um, carnivorous uh, mound of mud with arms and legs and the dynamic between the rancor and its wrangler in Jabba's palace also is this like funny bit of comedy when he's like crying because the rancor gets crushed and by the way the death of the rancor in Jabba's palace like one of the great Luke moments too like it's really it's brutal but it's awesome oh it's it's such an awesome moment I mean the the creativity that he uses in this to be able to take down the rancor without his weapons uh and to be able to use the force to do a great rock throw yeah uh and uh, but you're right actually interestingly i'm quite confident that the inspiration or one of the inspirations for the rancor is a potato <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of. and so it, it kind of does work it's just this giant like mushy mass beady uh, eyes of yeah and it's disgusting yeah uh, it almost when you think when i think about that now a little bit further it's almost like it's like a it's in its little eyes, like as like the the rotting part of a potato. You can think of it that way. I don't know. Uh, but it's it, it's such a classic monster. It's one another honorable mention of mine that I was so happy you had on your list. Um, it was uh, a great foe for Star Wars video games. Uh, it is just a disgusting beast, and it also returned in the Bad Batch as well. Uh, and oh, so cool. that's another. Uh, very uh, interesting plot line. And I guess there's no reason not to talk about that one a little bit quickly as now uh, because it's just a bit of a side story. Uh, but they did create a story of Bib Fortuna uh, hiring out the Bad Batch uh, to be able to get a Rancor for Jabba. And so uh, there's some implication that it could be the same Rancor, but this Rancor is a different name. So either Jabba renamed it 
um, although they imply it's a different sex, although rancors are, uh, I think, asexual um, and hermaphroditic. And so it's, like, it's, it's, it's hilarious. There's been a huge debate as to whether or not it's the same rancor. Oh, okay. Um, because you see it as a baby. And so it's like, oh, this is a baby rancor. And then, like, is this the same one that Luke kills later on? Very plausible. You can tell, you can tell the episode was written for that to be the case. Yeah. But because they have... Like, but they've also given you the opportunity, similarly, whether or not the, the bearded guy on uh, Endor is Rex or not. Right. It's, one of those, it's one of the couple things in Star Wars where you can have, you can have the canon your way okay. um, until they say it otherwise as to whether or not it's, uh, it's that Rancor or not, or whether or not Bid Fortuna is buying Jabba Rancor every few years because some other jedi came in and killed them for him. <laughs> i love it i wonder if we could see a rancor in the book of boba fett I'm presuming we're going to spend a little time on tatooine uh we certainly could uh i don't know if actually you know what i think oh no not a rancor it would be imp- i, I want to see more likely than that would be uh, i would like to see malakili who's the rancor keeper hmm. uh, his job after is he raises a hut in cobb vance village yeah uh, to be uh, a benevolent leader. They want to raise a, a, a hut to become powerful. A good guy? Uh, they they want to raise a good hut because oh. they know that it'll live a long time. Huts have power on Tatooine. And if they can raise one with, like, and this is the same village who then builds on a relationship to actually understand what, like, and work with the Tuscans. So it makes sense that they were already kind of open-minded in this way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that they would take a, aboard a hut. Uh, and so that's a cool story on Book of Boba Fett. I would like to see maybe even a little bit more. And this Wrangler, what's his name? Malakili. And so he's actually kind of a good guy too. Is he like a, a, a slave for the lack of a better word at Jabba's palace? Um, if you work for Jabba, you're a slave just because it's like kind of like once you're in the life, kid, you'll never be out sort of thing. Right. But, uh, no, he, he loves the Rancor yeah. and he, he loves the fact that he gets to uh, be the keeper of Jabba's creatures and in particular the Rancor. He's a bit of a Hagrid then. He just like loves the magical creatures and Yeah, great example. Yeah. And that's the reason as to why he's brought into uh Freetown uh to be able to to raise the hut. Uh your turn for number two. Uh my number two is Boga the Varactyl. I love Varactyls. Uh you may not know it by name, but you know it by sound. The the, when uh, Obi Wan is escaping Grievous and oh, sure. escaping the clones on Utapau and Grievous as well, yeah, good one. That is such a cool, like lizardy, dragony. Like, it makes this amazing sound. Uh, another on my list of uh, gray area in the sense that it's a very, very smart creature. Uh, Obi Wan is able to bond with it from a Force perspective. Um, but it's it just, it makes such a cool sound, uh, and it creates for this really great sequence, uh, and it makes sense. You get Grievous on this, like, mechanical wheel bike, and you got Obi-Wan on the Varactyl, uh, and you got, like, Obi-Wan engaging with the organic, and Grievous, like, dealing with the, like, just, it's very Separatist and Jedi, and this is one of the last missions Obi-Wan is it's one of the last things he does is it, it's the last thing he, he, he order 66 happens on boga uh yeah. and he, they get shot down together uh and so it's like this kind of like this bonding moment and they really build upon obi-wan's uh appreciation for the living creatures versus 
um, like flying ships uh, in the Master and Apprentice novel as well. Uh, and so it just makes sense that Obi-Wan, this guy who you keep mentioning is not a big fan of ships, uh, succeeds so well bouncing around Utapau on this like giant like wizard bird. Yeah. Uh, and it's just uh, such a cool character uh, and a home run for Revenge of the Sith. You're right. It's a really nice turn for Obi-Wan because he does have a lot of skepticism around technology, be they droids mm. or, or ships. And just like the it's, it's not that he's a wimpy baby like he's a Jedi master and he's one of the great warriors the galaxy knows. And so it's a nice opportunity to see him be such a badass. Like, sure, we get to see him wield a lightsaber. He's good on his feet. Uh, and he's good with language or whatever. And he's sneaky. We've seen him be sneaky uh, mm. almost more than any other Jedi. Um, but you're right. He's like really deserving of one of the big flashy a action sequences by the time he gets to pilot this Varactyl. And it helps also that the the creature itself is just really cool. A lot, a lot cooler, frankly, than the other monsters of its class in the prequel trilogy. Many of which, and I'm thinking of the arena and Attack of the Clones, they're okay. They're just kind of missing something, those three monsters. Uh, I would agree and disagree. I will say that the Acklay, uh, which is the one that Obi-Wan faces with the giant pincers, yeah. that one was uh, a hard, solid, honorable mention. Pretty Definitely cool. would have made my, my top 10 for sure. I like that one as well. Uh, but yeah, Boga is, is, is a good guy monster as well, which is kind of cool to see. That's right. Yeah. Uh, not a good guy monster. My number two is the Crate Dragon Baby. Nice. Obvi obviously, this is like been launched into a new degree of coolness uh, just since the start of season two of The Mandalorian. Like before that, we were aware of Crate Dragons. You probably a little bit more so than me. But like my main point of reference is just this big skeleton in the Dune Sea in Tatooine. But honestly, that was cool enough. Like I liked the idea that we could see a dragon eventually in Star Wars and that they lived up to 44 years of expectation and like blew it out of the water with some of the best uh, visual effects I've ever seen in an episode of television. Um, I just I completely launched Crate Dragons into the stratosphere for me in terms of likability. Yeah, my number one. No, nice, good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it really comes from all of the things that you said and, and a handful more. And I love that you mentioned particularly that... Uh, I, I probably knew more about the Krayt Dragon. I knew more about the Krayt Dragon. Uh, I knew a lot about the Krayt Dragon going into the Mandalorian, but I actually love the Krayt Dragon because it's a great memory for me as the start of this podcast. I've loved Star Wars my entire life. Yeah. Um, but I didn't study Star Wars necessarily in the same way. Like I, I, I knew a lot about planets and I knew a lot about like Jedi and the Jedi Order, um, but... I didn't necessarily know some of those like little off details about like every little detail, like it, people who only grew up with the original trilogy, maybe they analyzed that trilogy over and over and over again. And so they were able to be like, Oh, I want to learn more about what that, what that skeleton is. But I, I remember you particularly asked me, and I think our very first 20 as one of our trivia questions, what's that a skeleton of? And I didn't know the answer. Yeah. Okay. And I, and I was like, Oh my God. It's just like, how is that a gap that stares you right in the face for all those years? Uh, and then, of course, that spurs you to learn more and more about it. And then, of course, when The Mandalorian comes around uh, and I'm able to watch the episode, the way I see it, like, shifting through the sand and having the sand going around it. In fact, they're able to find the crate Dragon Pearl in the end. And it's just so much more satisfying. And so uh, with the crate Dragon, I have this journey that aligns so directly with the podcast that we're on here as well because it's allowed me – it's a perfect example of something that 
I wouldn't have put on my list because I didn't really know, I didn't know what it was before we started this podcast. But in the time that we have, it's not only made its way to the top, it's made its way in part to the top because we also got a mini movie where it was the main character. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was this gigantic monster. It was the final boss of the first episode of Mando season two. Uh, and that episode uh, as of this week has received Emmy nominations. Yeah. Uh, and it's just so incredible in the, the way it doesn't go down easy. You have to kill it in a creative way. And the fact that you get like that Herculean moment from Mando, uh, it is just, it checks all the boxes on, oh, you want to do a Star Wars monster? We've been missing this for a little while. Let's give you one at 11 out of 10. Well, and I almost kind of wish that we had restricted this theme to just monsters because we both picked a couple of heroic critters for our list, mm. the Porgs and the Varactyls. Um, but so much of what drives my liking for a Star Wars monster, and I'm using that word uh, negatively on purpose, like th to indicate mm. that it's villainous, like say the Krayt Dragon. Um, so much of what drives my, my affection for some of these monsters is how they're defeated. And really that just means mm -hmm. is it's good movie making, is that like seeing that big hydraulic door come down on the Rancor's neck and it dies, makes me like the Rancor all the more because I'm enjoying myself as a movie viewer more. And that's certainly true of the of the Crate Dragon in the first season or the uh, second season of, of Mandalorian because it's just frigging disgusting the way it yeah. gets ruptured and like that Din goes inside. And up until this, it's it seemed virtually insurmountable. That's true of Godzilla. It's true of the T-Rex. It's true of Bruce the Shark. It's it, that's, that's a real tenet of monster movie making is that you have to convince the audience, well, like this is impossible. And then of course they pull it off and you are really amped. And so you get that from the Krayt Dragon in spades. Yeah, 100% using of the Bantha as bait. Mm. Uh, the fact that it, it brings this village together with the Tuscans uh, because they need to rally together to defeat the giant monster, which is very classic Seven Samurai, Star Wars inspiration usage. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it, it's also a classic Mando episode of, uh, I, w I, w I want something, so let's make a trade. <laughs> My number one uh, remains in Tatooine and it's the Sarlacc. Like nice. certainly one of the greatest uh, daylight sequences in all of Star Wars, uh, built around the sphere of a creature that you mostly can't even really see uh, other than the maw in the sand and the teeth that kind of interline it. And of course that insane tongue with like a beak on it. Yeah. Um, and again, it's not so much that I think the, the, the look of the Sarlacc monster is like as cool as, uh, I don't know, a, 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 a car that James Bond would drive or something. It's not that it's just like the no. movie magic that's created as a result of this being the centrality of the scene. And there's nothing like the pit of Carcoon and, and the Sarlacc and everything that happens there to kick off this final act of the first great trilogy of star Wars. Um, and it's like after, like it kind of like raises the stakes after Jabba's palace, which is also like a really amazing start to any star Wars movie. It's a really great, second scene like it, it, for there to be another action oh, yeah. sequence um i don't have anything more sophisticated to say about about the sarlacc i just always loved it what a cool scene yeah i mean i'm going to be digesting that description over the next thousand years colin uh <laughs> it's uh no i'm so another like 
you really hit a lot of like the honorable mentions that I wanted us to be able to discuss. So I was really glad about that. The Sarlacc's awesome. I really, I don't, I adore that scene. I don't attribute a ton of it to my, uh, I guess, appreciation for the Sarlacc itself. Uh, but I should, because it's incredibly essential. Uh, it gives you that burp to let you know that Boba Fett's in there. Yeah, kind of uh, silly. It, it is silly, but in, the, in that same thing, it's gross. Yeah. Uh, but it also has big stakes, and it creates this uh, kind of thought process anytime you're around sand. Uh, and anytime That's true. An invi- and anytime Star Wars can get your imagination running just by seeing a different type of environment, uh, like big, big red tree, you know, exactly where your mind's going to take you. And well, it's like I've talked about your kid in the snow, in the snow, putting on your parka. It feels like you're being on Hoth. And, and that's really true. I thought about that too. Like a lot of people like to quote the John Mulaney joke about how, uh, when I was a kid, I thought that quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem than it turned out to be. Like, yeah. that, that's very funny, but like, this is kind of the only other time sand is treated as a real danger um, in fiction. And it's actually like way worse than quicksand. Like it's this evil thing that could like, could be underneath your beach towel. And that's, that's cool. I mean, it's not, it's not like a scary scene. We talked a lot about, about movie monsters tonight. It's not like these are all predicated on suspense. It's mostly just about action. Um, But I don't know. You're, you're right. It, it kind of like changes your thinking around this type of environment. And that's that's a very powerful thing that movies can do. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, a handful of these uh, different monsters achieve that in this one. Uh, do you want to do some uh, honorable mentions? I don't really have a whole lot. We briefly mentioned Tauntauns earlier. That's like cool, I guess, but they're kind of yappy and dumb. They do serve a great purpose in Star Wars. And I love a lot about Hoth, but I didn't care particularly about Tauntauns for any real reason. Although you have one right over your right shoulder. I, I do have one right over my shoulder. I, I, I'm not, I also agree with you in that same regard. They're definitely on the honorable mentions. Uh, something I would be okay with seeing return. Sure. Um, but they're like stinky and they're kind of like loud. And the uh, guts are gross. Like I remember when I saw those guts for the first time and I was like, ugh, this is a, a new kind of thing for a queasy stomach like me to have to digest. Yeah, they're like, the guts are, are awful. It's yeah. so gross. Yeah. Uh, but they are something I would like to see return. Uh, and they are just, they're classic Star Wars in the way that they kind of like hop along on like the ice. Yeah. Um, also the Ronto. Uh, I like the Ronto. Speaking of the Tatooine Beast's Burden. Uh, it's like the another dinosaur one with like kind of like the the curled horns on the side. Okay. Like really tall. Some Jawas are riding. One a Jawa falls off one and the entry to like the Mos Eisley Cantina. What's the scene. what's the creature that Mando has to face in like very early Mando episodes and and they involve uh, Nick Nolte's character a little bit too. Yeah, a mudhorn. Mudhorns, yeah. That's another one of my audible mentions. That's a cool the mudhorn one. arc. Is a great arc. Something we've talked about a little bit uh, in The Phantom Menace is the post-Bongo City stuff and always a bigger fish. And so that there's like a couple of really interesting and gross fish designs there, but it leads up to the, the Sando Aqua Monster, which is like yeah. buff. Like it has arms, it has fists, and like these big yeah. like Dwayne Johnson guns, which is kind of silly, but also kind of awesome, I guess. Yeah, it looks awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, that was definitely, it's not one of my honorable mentions. Also, the Colo Clawfish, which is the one that they find in the cave, and it's right. like the, the snaky one that like kind of lights up. Yeah. Um, but uh, those are both really cool. And also, speaking of Naboo, it's also the Cadu, which is what the Gungans ride, and it's kind of like that uh, oh, yeah. 
two-legged sort of weird dinosaur-y. Yeah, yeah like, but it's they look better than the Eopie, which is the one that like farts on Tatooine. Oh, okay, that's uh, what I was picturing. The ones that are kind of like they're kind of like lizard turkeys. Yeah, they're, but these are kind of both like lizard turkeys a little yeah. bit. Uh, <laughs> but the Cadu is a little bit more um, reptilian and uh, a little bit more. I don't know, just it, a little less gross. Um, do you like Foth? Go ahead. Sorry? Do you like Foth ears or, or do you just like a, no. ascribe too much uh, of that city and, and that whole sequence being bad? I don't like that sequence. Uh, Foth ears will forever be the, oh, it's not pods. They're not pod racers. Uh, yeah. As soon as I the rumbling occurred and it was clear it was a racetrack, I was so fucking mad it wasn't a pod race. Yeah, yeah. And that it was these like new like horse-like things. And then JJ goes and like, oh, I want to do my own weird horse thing mm-hmm. and gives us Orbox. And it's just like, both of these suck, guys. Neither are creative. Um, and well, I get the five years are creative, but it's just like they're unnecessary. Unnecessary. And they create a stupid sequence. And they're not that interesting. Like, I, I know that we don't like to rely too heavily on CGI, but creatures created with computers in the prequel trilogy are all interesting, like without exception. And that's yeah. not, not really true of a horse and a mask in Rise of Skywalker. No, you're com- absolutely spot on there. Yeah. Uh, like the lug of beast though, in force awakens, that's the thing that Tito's riding. It's that giant, like it's, like, oh, yeah. it's like a cyborg, um, elephant. <laughs> it's, right. It's really cool, but weird as well. Uh, and so that's one that I would, I'd like to learn more about. They're just definitely uh, odd little creatures. So I really thought that like one of the great examples of the gray area that kind of towed the line is Ewoks. And if I thought on any level that Ewoks could qualify for this list, I would have included them. But to be be fair, they're pretty primitive. Like they're, they they have religion and they have a language and they have tree houses, but they are- a leader. Yeah. And that's why I didn't choose them ultimately. But I do think that they're- nearer the surface they're nearer the middle than you know say kaminoans or something they weren't represented by the galactic senate um so that's i guess you could say in 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 part but yeah um there are definitely some serious and then that's another interesting thing is that creates a whole other debate of like um speciesism that occurs in star wars there's a lot of that yeah uh and so that creates some interesting stories that uh, you just see if some larger scale stories could take that focus. I'm waiting for the day for a main Star Wars character to be a non-human. Yeah, that'll uh, be very interesting when that's going to happen. Um, but could happen sooner and later. Oh, Ahsoka is going. Ahsoka is we know going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's just a matter of whether or not it'll um, it'll be anything else before that or anything. They're always going to be humanoids though, because they want us to relate to them. Yes, and to a degree that should be the case. Yes, I agree. Um, and then uh, just uh, the Lot Wolf and the Tooth Cat, uh, two other uh, creations from from Rebels, uh, right. and both uh, good designs. And the Tooth Cat we've seen in Mando as well. And you also yeah. mentioned the Exogorth a little while ago, like another like kind of gross, weird. It it's kind of looks like a sock peeking out of a like a like an on a puppet show. Like it's not a great visual effect, but it's a pretty iconic Star Wars it's moment. Like a, it's like a giant blackhead, basically. Yeah, it's really gross. What about those bat creatures? Um, I think it's, Minox. Yeah, did you mention that the already? In, in, no, the ones inside the Exocord. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I didn't mention those. This is disgusting. I hate my box. I have nothing else. I couldn't think of anything else, but I'm sure this is one of those lists that is truly endless. Yes, it's such a deep list, but yeah, I don't, I don't have anything else either. Um, there were other ones, but those are the ones that I wanted to focus on. Okay, onto the um, news. You did tease that the the Emmys were representing Star Wars this year in a way they never have. Yes, and uh, I forget the exact number. I think it's twenty four. Do you know? No, I, I don't know specifically. But twenty four yeah. nominations for the Mandalorian. Except uh, I think Pedro got uh, got snubbed, didn't he? Like a bunch of supporting Emmy nominations for Oliphant and for Giancarlo Esposito and um, Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers, which I thought was a little odd. He's like not very yeah. heavily present in season two. He's not. It's just a, a bit of a a legacy uh, honor in that regard. But yeah, it's 24 nominations uh, in 19 categories. Um, and that is for uh, single camera picture, editing, uh, outstanding cinematography, um, editing, costumes, well, most notably, uh, best drama, styling. best drama TV series. Like it's in the big yeah. category. That's like really cool. Yeah, the, the the big one. Now it won't. It probably won't win, but it's really nice to see. Just in general, for and I mean, it it, it could it, when it comes to uh, impact it had over the course of the year. It yeah, was I mean, monstrously I, popular. But. It it won't win, and I I'm not even saying that I, that it ought to win. But like I can remember when Game of Thrones was the biggest show in the world, and this is pre-final season it would not have been weird at all if game of thrones won best drama and it might have for all i know and i can remember yeah. it might have even been you saying like well you know we got star wars tv series starting up like maybe that will take some of game of thrones's inheritance and i probably thought yeah no that's not going to happen and now it seems a lot more plausible yeah and you also see like like wandavision and whatnot was, was also nominated um but i i think it's just it's really encouraging to see and i, I you have to I guess there has to be a bit of a floodgate opener. Yep. What's going to be the one that changes the game? Now, Mando was so long ago, but it was bloody massive. Season two, like, blew the socks off the world. Yeah. And so I don't know whether it's a performance in a Star Wars that needs to be, like, I think Catherine like Han Joker kind of transcends. Catherine Han could win in her category. And that's yes. not Star Wars, but that's of the same kind of, uh, well, it probably suffers from the same, it doesn't suffer much, you know, Disney Studios, mm -hmm. but like it probably suffers from the same stigma in terms of big budget, comic book, uh, like high octane entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, it's not an art film at all, right? Yeah, exactly. But in that same vein, uh, this genre experimentation that occurs with star wars and the involvement of different people who are award winners um i mean you just there also needs to be the right project as well like you're never going to give adam driver an award for something for movies that are so controversial um but if the last jedi if your initial if the initial critics reaction to the last jedi was everyone's reaction to the last jedi Adam Driver could have won for that. I mean, yeah. it's not beyond the scope. Right. Um, and so it's just, it, it needs to be a perfect storm. Uh, and as much as it was a perfect storm for me, I don't know if it's going to be that way to win a, a big one at the end of this year. No, but it could win some below the line awards, some technical awards for sure. Definitely. And I hope it does. It sure shit deserves the technical awards. The technical so. achievement in this show 
is the best in the world and yeah. it's game changer. Agreed. What else? Uh, a couple things uh, also about Mandalorian. Uh, we're getting another part to the gallery and we're going to get an extension of season two's gallery focusing specifically on the return of Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because the first part didn't focus on that at all because it's so much of it was kept under wraps, this one will be interviews and focusing particularly on the creation of that last episode uh, and that last uh, returning arc. And so that'll be cool to get like a, a half hour or an hour behind the scenes special just awesome. for that one episode. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that one, that last 10 minutes is deserving of its own documentary, for sure. Yeah, and well, that's what we're getting, and so yeah. that's what's really awesome. And, and Mark Hamill uh, has been kind of, uh, I don't know what he's doing the rounds for in particular, but he's been on a couple talk shows and whatnot. Uh, and he did uh, confirm something that's been wildly known um, or believed in the industry, um, uh, that in... A, for a long time in the versions of the force awakens script the film started with his hand floating through space i know i saw uh, that jimmy so fallon that clip cool. i saw i saw him on fallon the other night i found it i found jimmy a little annoying um but yeah, yeah i thought i thought that was interesting too that like because it it sounds like a terrible start to the movie and i'm really glad that they didn't do that but i don't know maybe there's a, a world where it could have been done tastefully yeah and i think it's a better uh way to see how the lightsaber ends up in a random place than for Maz to just have it. True. Um, but in that same vein, it it could have come across looking really weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, also, in the Obi-Wan show, um, Sung Kang has uh, done some, he's kind of spoken a little bit. Uh, and so he's super excited about just being part. He's been a lifelong Star Wars fan. Uh, and he mentions uh, just being on set and the, the Jedi around and the way he said it, it was implying plural Jedi. Uh, so that leads me to believe that it's flashbacks or that there's maybe other Jedi in the show, which could be really interesting. Yeah. Um, but additionally, it's heavily rumored that he's actually going to be playing the fifth brother. Uh, so an Inquisitor uh, as well, which um, Moses Ingram was also rumored to be playing an Inquisitor. Inquisitors often travel in pairs, uh, and fifth brother was Darth Vader's, um, one of his preferred Inquisitors, uh, and the fifth brother uh, is also in Rebels, and so uh, it'd be really cool to kind of see that brought to life, uh, and if he's indeed one of those characters. Um, so it's exciting, all the, the lightsaber discussion and how like classic like Revenge of the Sith, really merging Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. Oh yeah, finally the one the one that really meets them in the middle, because uh, Han Solo's not on the Revenge of the Sith side, no. and that arc continued. But like, this is really going to be such a connecting piece, and I'm just get so excited every little slipper of news. Yeah, and then another exciting. one is this young actress Vivian Lyra Blair, who is cast as heavily rumored to be Leia. And, oh, wow. Uh, it was rumored a long time ago that they were looking for young Luke and young Leia. But the rumor in particular now is that Leia is actually, her role is one, it's kind of like the inciting incident. He, she is the reason Obi-Wan leaves Tatooine, is the rumor. And so okay. uh, that's interesting. It doesn't mean her role needs to be huge. Uh, that, and to be honest, Bail Organa uh, or... Um, Qui-Gon or just the force itself were the only things that were going to make him leave the planet anyway. And so this makes sense. Right. Although it, what jumps out at me right away is that in her famous 
plea for help via R2-D2, Leia appears to be introducing herself to Obi-Wan as if maybe he doesn't know who she is or it doesn't remember her. Um, and so they have to be careful about that, I think, because that's not something you can screw around with. Yeah, I agree with that. And I don't think that they will. I think they'll be very cognizant of that. And even if um, it's just, uh, they could be in the same room. Mm. They don't just, it, it just can't be like a, oh, this is such and such. Right. Uh, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi. And also he wouldn't introduce this is Obi-Wan Kenobi because at the age, like, Bail Organa is not going to tell his like nine or 10 year old daughter about like, here's this Jedi. Oh, you, like, don't, you're not allowed to tell anybody though. That's like, you'll get murdered for that secret little kid. So yeah. uh, I'm sure it'll be handled with kid gloves to make sure that nobody brings that up. Well, maybe I'm just spacing on something I ought to already know, but like, what was Leia's plan for getting that message to Obi-Wan? They didn't, she didn't have any idea where to find him, right? She was just putting the message in the droid and then what? It just happened to find its way to Obi-Wan? No, I think she was going to Tatooine. So she did know he was there? Yeah. Okay, that's good. They I'm, trying can... to see, I'm trying to remember if Bail Organa specifically says that in Rogue One. Uh... Maybe. They can fill in the gap a little bit there, though, with, with Obi-Wan, maybe. Yeah, oh, they definitely, but like the, the mission specifically, like Bail Organa knows where Obi-Wan is. Yes, of course. And so like the mission specifically when he's like, so it sends Leia and it's to get Obi-Wan and to bring him to Coruscant. Okay. And so she, she intends, she says in her message that she regrets not being able to do it in, per, in person. Yeah. And so she intended to go see him. Cool. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that uh, leaves a lot to be uh, up for intrigue. And uh, although there was rumors that Mando's season three wasn't going to start production until later in the year, there's some rumors that it's also kind of gearing up. So I don't know which is to believe is true. They could be just doing some pre-production stuff, or it could also be Obi-Wan stuff, and they're all getting their, their what's and nuts crossed. Possible, yeah. Uh, and uh, October 2021, uh, I've not been reading the War of the Bounty Hunters comic series, but kind of following a little bit loosely. That's the reintroduction of Kira. Uh, they showed the the teaser poster for it, uh, and it's a picture of uh, like half of Leia's face and half of Kira's face, and the oh, slab wow. of carbonite in the, and the slab of carbonite in the middle. Uh, oh, <laughs> so, okay. That could be an interesting arc to read. And so I uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they uh, cross paths. It would be point. crazy if they cross paths. How come this never occurred to me before? They're the same age. Well, it, the important part is yeah, the fact that we, we do know she's survived up until this point. And yeah. So I'm very, very curious to see her reintroduction uh, because that is a character we've mentioned many times before. Uh, has, uh, despite Solo not growing on us more over time, Kira certainly has. Yeah, that's so funny. Eh? She just really, like, she really resonates in a movie that otherwise is so problematic, and we we agree on that. We, we talk about Kira probably more than we need to, considering her screen yeah. time thus far, but it's just proof that the the what they laid, the groundwork, is ripe for the picking. Like, there's clearly more mm -hmm. to be done there, and they, they want to explore that, which is exciting. Yes, and Maul is also such a fascinating character, True. especially when dealing with an individual mm -hmm. whom he's trying to get something from. Yes. Uh, his relationship with Ezra, his relationship with Obi-Wan, uh, his relationship with Palpatine, um, yeah, his, his relationship with his brother in the Clone Wars. It's just so fascinating and, and, and rich. Nice. Do you have anything else? No, that's it in the news. 
Okay, want to wish a couple of happy birthdays on Thursday, July 22nd to Terrence Stamp, Chancellor Valorum. Valorum. Just kind of like Valorum. It's just a one-time guy. I don't really know why he's deserving of a happy birthday on our podcast, but I don't know. It, it seems we say He happy was birthday. the Supreme Chancellor of the Galaxy. You're right, you're right. And, you're a, right. Cor- and a corrupt politician. I should show Although he, did, he, he did send the Jedi. Could have gotten a lot worse, though, corrupt politician or not. Like, he was kind of holding things <laughs> the together. The guy who followed was a little more corrupt. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's kind of like Bush and Trump. <laughs> Uh, Friday, <laughs> Friday, July twenty third. Happy birthday to Woody Harrelson. Speaking of Solo, a, Sol- a Star Wars story. If you have any ideas about creatures and critters and monsters in Star Wars that you think uh, didn't get their fair shake in this week's podcast, or if you want to share your lists, you can email us recorder six six podcast at gmail dot com or tweet at recorder six uh, six. Rate and review on your preferred podcast app, please. And if you're with us on YouTube, be sure to like and subscribe. And until we are together again, may the force be with you.